I want you to think about the idea of renovating the heart. Last week, we shared the vision that we have for the future of First Baptist and the idea that we want to become a church where people really do become transformed from ordinary to disciple makers who change the world around them because they multiply the faith that God has given them. And that's going to, cha- that's going to take a real renovation of the heart of this church. And I want to be clear when I say renovating the heart of the church, I don't mean the building. I don't mean the institution. I mean each one of us. That's how a church gets changed, by us being changed. And here's the thing about renovation. If you renovate your house, and some of you have done this, you don't just tell someone, hey, I want you to spruce things up a bit. No, you give them specifics. You say, I I need these countertops to be, you know, to become granite. Right now they're they're something else, but I want them to be updated. I want my window fixtures to look better. I I want my roof to stop leaking. I want a deck out back. You have specific things you want to do. In the same way, I think each one of us, if we really want to see God work in our lives, we have to get honest with him. We have to say, Lord, I'm excited about the idea of our church growing and, and reaching and becoming all that it can be, but I know that there are things in me that stand in the way of that happening. And let me just be honest with you about myself. I know that I want this to happen. I want our church to become everything this vision says, but I know that part of that is from false motives. If I can be totally honest, and, and y'all don't tell anybody I said this, this is just between us, but, but actually there's a part of me that wants this simply because it's a lot more fun to be part of a church that's growing and thriving than it is to be part of a church that's just going through the motions. I've been in both, and I know which one's more enjoyable. Also, there's a part of me that wants this because I want to feel successful, and I want people to say, boy, he did a great job there, and I want you to think I'm a good pastor, and and none of that is good. None of that is a, a worthy motive, and so I'm confessing that to the Lord every day and saying, Lord, change my heart. And get all that selfish stuff out of the way. And maybe, maybe your issue is different. If you're honest before the Lord, you don't have to tell me. But maybe you would say, you know, the truth is, I don't like change. And, and bringing in a bunch of new people and some of them don't look like me, that, that's going to make things a little different. I like my church the way it is. I mean, just changing the worship guide has already got me messed up. So I, you can imagine. You just confess that before the Lord and say, change my heart. Or maybe you would say, you know, the truth is I used to be active in ministry, but I've gotten to be spiritually lazy. I've gotten to where I just, I just show up and, and expect a, a sermon and some songs I like, and I don't really give anything anymore. So change my heart, Lord, and give me that spirit of, of going and becoming all that you want me to be. Or maybe you would say, I know that if we're going to reach our community, that means all of us are going to have to share our faith, and it's been a long time since I've shared faith with anybody, I don't even know who I'd share it with. All my, all my friends are here in this church, and they're all saved, so how would I even begin? Change my heart, Lord, and give me a heart for the people around me. Help me to go across the street and meet my neighbors or my coworkers and, and be open to the leadership of your Holy Spirit. So right now, I just want to lead us in a real quick time of prayer and give you the chance to just, just pour out your heart to him and say, Lord, change me. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, I I pray to you right now and pray that you would renovate our hearts. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and convict us. And you've already convicted me. I know that you need to change my heart and, and help me to want the right things to happen for the right reasons, to desire your glory, to to weep for the souls of the lost, and and it not be about me at all. And Lord, others here can confess other things. There might be people here that would say, I'm not sure what to confess. I don't know what is in me that would hold back this church, but Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would make it clear to each one of us. And Lord, just get us right with you.
that in our heart of hearts, what we would want more than anything is for your will to be done, for souls to be saved, for this city to see a great awakening that would spread to the county, to the state, to the nation. Lord, I pray for that renovation in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So y'all turn with me to Matthew 22, Matthew 22, verse 37. Matthew 22, verse 37, um, we're in a series right now called The Man Who Changed Everything. We're talking about the impact Jesus made on our world, not just in terms of opening the door to salvation, but just in how he changed it. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, how if you really pay attention, you'll see he has impacted this world more than any person who's ever lived, and it's not even close. And last week, we talked about how he changed the way the world thinks about compassion and about how we relate to people who have less than us. And today, we're going to talk about how he changed the way we think, period. Last weekend, my daughter came home from college. She's a freshman at a university whose name I find it really hard to say publicly. I mean, it just kind of sticks in my throat when I go, university of... But she came home, and, and it was her birthday, and we had a good time with her. She'd been there a month, and she was just... I, I really wanted to know, how you doing? And she said, Dad, I've never been happier. I just, I just love it. And I was so glad to hear that. And people say, well, don't you miss her? And don't, aren't you sad that she's gone? And don't you wish she would say, oh, I hate it there. I don't want to come home. And the truth is, yeah, I miss her, but I'm so glad she's enjoying herself. And I remember being where she is. I remember being in that position of going off to college. And I was so excited, too. And my first years there, and actually all four years there, were wonderful I went to the University of Houston and, and, and got into the honors program, so that helped a lot. Um, but it wasn't because I was tired of my parents or ready to get away from them. I've got fantastic parents. I still love them. I'm planning to go see them next weekend. Uh, it wasn't because I was this genius kid in a dumb school. I wasn't even in the top 10% of my class, so it's not that at all. But it's just it was going away to a place where people took learning seriously. You know, I was raised in the country. I was raised, my parents made sure I knew how to work hard, made sure I knew how to take care of animals. They gave me enough experience of all those things to tell me that farming and ranching wasn't my future. But, but I was glad I had that experience. At the same time, my parents taught me to love learning and to, to love reading and to, to love history and to really think through things before I spoke my piece. And so when I went off to a place where those kinds of things were valued, it felt like liberation. It was enjoyable. I say all that to say this. Young adults are leaving the church like never before. You're probably aware of this. The millennial generation, the generation of my kids, more of them are walking away from Christianity than any generation of, in the history of our nation. And there's a lot of study that's been done on this, and, and there are several reasons why that's happening. But one of the reasons they give when you talk to a young adult who grew up in church and then as an adult they don't really have anything to do with the church, they don't necessarily, haven't necessarily walked away from faith, but sometimes they have. But one of the things they often say is, I just found it so intellectually confining. I just found that people who I went to church with were so narrow-minded, and they just they, they couldn't handle it when I had questions. I would go to my Sunday school class or to my pastor and say, hey, I've always wondered about this, or I, was, I heard this in science class, and how does that reconcile with Scripture, or um, this is something that's always bothered me. And I never got any answers, and people would kind of make me feel guilty for even questioning. And I just felt like... You know, I, I had to choose between believing the things I'd been brought up in and, and continuing to go to church or, or, or following where the truth led. And, and I just couldn't, I couldn't say goodbye to my mind 
in order to keep my faith. And maybe you know somebody who's like that. Maybe you feel like that. If, if you do, I'm glad you're here this morning. But if you're a young person, if you're a person who struggles with intellectual things, let me just say this. Jesus never once made anyone choose between their brain and following him. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Jesus valued the life of the mind. In fact, uh, our text proves it. Matthew, 20, Matthew uh, 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is speaking these words as a Jewish man. One thing about being Jewish, especially in that time, more than other cultures, the Jews valued learning. So even though Jesus was born in a very poor family, a very blue-collar family, there wasn't really that difference between blue-collar, white-collar in terms of education back then. Jesus was raised in the Torah, what we know as the Old Testament. He was taught to read very early. This is the way they did young Jewish boys back then. They wanted to make sure they knew God's Word for themselves. And Jesus, as he grew older, um, one of the scriptures that he learned, in fact, the most important scripture to any Jew in that time, was Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And the Jews called it the Shema. It's, that's the Hebrew for the word here in Hebrew. Um, and the Shema reads this way. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And every Jew would have had that, including Jesus, would have had that posted on the doorpost of their home. Jesus would have seen it every time he walked into his house. Probably as an adult, he wore it on a strap around his wrist. And he also would have known, like all other Jews, that the very next words in Deuteronomy said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And as he got to be an adult, he taught that as the most important of all the commands of God. But he changed it. See, he's Jesus. He could do that. He could change Scripture. I can't. You can't. But Jesus could. Do you know how he changed the Shema? How did he change those words? What did he add? Have you been paying attention? With all your mind. That's right. Jesus added the words with all your mind and said, that is the greatest commandment. Jesus valued the life of the mind. Jesus valued learning. He valued knowledge. That's what made him the greatest teacher who has ever walked the face of the earth. I have heard some incredible teachers. I've been privileged to sit under the teaching of some great preachers and instructors and lecturers. Jesus tops them all. Here's how great Jesus was. Here at this church, we have padded pews, air conditioning. We meet at optimal times, 8.30 and 11, convenient we, we give you options. I prepare. I, I work so hard on these messages every week. I pour myself into them. With all that combined, we have to beg people to come. Jesus stood out in the open, in the hot, hot sun. People walked for days to get to him and stood there all day without food, stood there, didn't sit, listening to him, and they couldn't get enough. When he got done and he would walk away, they'd follow him. That's how good a teacher he was. He was an amazing instructor. People would listen to him and they'd say, wait a second, I thought this guy was a carpenter's son. How did he learn all this stuff? 
One day, his enemies hired some soldiers to go arrest him. They really wanted to silence Jesus. And when the soldiers got there, Jesus was right in the middle of a sermon, and they stopped and listened for a while. And a few hours later, they came back to the religious leaders empty-handed, and and the, the enemies of Jesus said, what are you doing? We gave you money. We told you to arrest him. And they said, I don't know. We've never heard anybody speak like this man. Now, that's some powerful preaching. Jesus was so powerful in his preaching this is his real genius, that he taught truths about God that eminent scholars who had spent their whole lives studying the Torah and thinking about God could hear him speak one time and walk away saying, I've never thought about it that way. He taught me something I didn't know. And at the same time, little children in that very same crowd could understand what he had to say so well that they had the information necessary to follow him and come to know Christ and and go to heaven when they died. That's how amazing Jesus was as a teacher. He was a moral genius. His last command before he died, before actually before he ascended into heaven, we know it as the the Great Commission. It's Matthew chapter 28. He said, "Go go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. And the last instructions he gave to his disciples was teach people. Now, keep in mind who he's talking to here. He's talking to very blue-collar men, fishermen, uh, different people like that who weren't necessarily trained. But he was saying, you need to become teachers. And they did. In fact, once the Holy Spirit came to them, they became powerful teachers themselves. And Acts chapter 5, verse 42 says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching. Because Jesus cared about knowledge, so did they. They took his words literally. In fact, one of the hallmarks of the early church was they didn't just teach men, they taught women equally. And that was rare in that that society because both Jewish rabbis and Greek sages were well known to only have male disciples. But Jesus had women as well as men following him. And and the disciples probably remembered the day they were at Lazarus' house and his sisters Mary and Martha were there. And Martha was doing what was typically thought of as woman's work. She was going around and serving everyone and cooking in the kitchen and keeping everything clean. Meanwhile, Mary, the sister, was sitting there at Jesus' feet listening like a male disciple. And Martha took Jesus aside and said, aren't you going to say something to Mary? She's not doing her job. She needs to get in the kitchen with me and help. And Jesus said, Martha, I appreciate all you're doing, but I'm only going to be here a little while. There's going to be dishes to clean forever. She's doing the right thing. She's sitting and listening. The disciples understood that everybody deserves to know the truth, that that's more important than anything else. And so learning is key. In the early church, the first crisis, the first big crisis, I mean, you've probably been in churches that had disputes, right? Yeah, that's why in my town there's a First Baptist Church and another Baptist Church and another one and another one. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it goes, right? The first church fight ever in Acts chapter 6 was because there were a number of widows in the church, and it was an interracial church. The early church was multiracial, and the widows who weren't Jewish felt slighted. They felt like they weren't getting as much charity as the widows who were Jewish, and the disciples said, hey, this is a big logistical problem, and it could split our church but we can't tackle this. Our job is to teach the truth. So they said to the church, you pick out seven good men, seven men of wisdom full of the Holy Spirit, and they'll handle details like this so we can stick to teaching. And that tells you how important teaching was to the church. Those were the first seven deacons, by the way. 
So centuries passed. That's the way the church began. It began with a firm foundation of education. Centuries passed, and the barbarians sacked Rome, and suddenly civilization entered the Dark Ages. When I was a freshman in high school, Mr. Westmoreland's world history class, one of my classmates asked Mr. Westmoreland, was there something wrong with the sun during the Dark Ages? She really did. And, and she, was, she was an attractive girl. She was one of the more popular girls in our class. So no one made fun of her. And I am here, you know, 20 some odd years later. But if, you're, if she's listening to the podcast, I want her to know, we call it the Dark Ages, not because there was anything, you know, the climate wasn't different. It was just that civilization as we knew it had become largely illiterate. In fact, do you want to know where the center of learning was during the Dark Ages? If you wanted to meet somebody who could read, someone who knew things, you went to the monastery. That's where the learned people were. And those monks, they did the world an incredible service that has very little to do with the church. They hand-copied all the great works of the classical authors. So the only reason we have access to the works of Herodotus and Homer and Virgil and Cicero and all these other people from the Greek and Roman age is because these Christian monks hand-copied their work and zealously guarded them from the barbarians and the Vikings and the looters and everybody else who wanted them. And keep in mind, some of those were pagan authors they were copying. Now, why would Christian monks want to pass along the work of people who weren't even believers? Because they believed, like St. Augustine said, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's true because God made it true. And therefore, to know that truth is to bring you a little closer to God. That makes all knowledge holy. That makes every field of endeavor in its own way holy. That means that if you study biology, if you study chemistry, if you study physics, if you study history, if you study engineering, if you study auto mechanics, I think even math can be called holy, okay? And I'm speaking as someone who, who swore at the end of my freshman year I would never, ever do algebra again, and I have kept that vow. <laughs> math is holy because it's true, and if it's true, it's God's truth. So it is a holy thing to learn. The monasteries eventually gave birth to the first universities. You want to know where the idea of a university education comes from? Oxford, Cambridge, the other early universities came straight out of Christian monasteries and cathedrals. Later on, as people migrated to the New World, long before there was the United States, they began to plant colleges, colleges like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, William & Mary. Do you realize of the first 138 colleges and universities in this country's history, 92% of them were founded by Christian men and women for the specific purpose of raising up missionaries and ministers and men and women of God. Now, most of them have, have gone away from that original purpose. They're still fine institutions of learning, but that's why they were created. They wouldn't exist if it weren't for the movement of Jesus Christ. If you did a study of cultures around this world, you would be amazed at how many different people groups wouldn't even have a written language today if it weren't for some Christian missionary going to visit them. And I'm not just talking about nations in Africa, South America, Asia. Do you realize the Cyrillic language and the Cyrillic alphabet used by a lot of Eastern Europe, including Russia, that's named for Saint Cyril. He was the missionary to the Slavic peoples. Why would these missionaries go and teach people to read? because they wanted them to be able to read the scriptures. That's why. It's because of the movement of Jesus that written language spread throughout the world. And by the way, in our own country, where do you think public schools came from? 
See, the, the Protestant Reformation reminded everyone of what the Scriptures taught, that all people are priests. The priesthood of all believers means every person is supposed to relate to God one-on-one. -on -one. You don't need me to tell you what the Bible says. God has given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the ability to read the Scriptures and to know Him personally. And so early Christians, Christians in this country and other places, they said, we want to make sure that everybody in our society can read. Every child, no matter how poor, can read. Therefore, they can read the Scriptures and know our God. That's where public school came from. You know, there's this myth today that science and Christianity or religion at large are just at, at, at loggerheads and there's no way they can coexist and you have to choose one or the other, science or faith, reason or faith, and it's just not true. The, the actual truth is that science came out of Christianity. We think of the Greeks as being very enlightened and, and very civilized. The truth was the, the Greeks weren't interested at all in science because they believed that all matter was evil. They were Platonists. The Platonic uh, way of thinking was that the soul inside a man is holy and everything else is, is worthless. And then Christianity came along, and Christians believed, no, God created this world, and he made it good. And therefore, to know this world better is to know God better. And that's why we started studying science and how the world works. And that's why men like Kepler and Galileo and Copernicus and Pascal and Priestley and Pasteur and Newton were all godly men who loved Jesus and loved science at the same time. And you, you might say, well, that doesn't seem to be the case today. I mean, today scientists don't believe in God. That's not entirely true. Rice University did a study a few years ago and found that of professional scientists in America today, 36% believe in God, 18% attend church weekly, 19% pray often. And those numbers are very low. I realize they're much lower than, than our culture at large but it just goes to show there are still thousands of professional scientists who love Jesus and who are devoting their lives to scientific study. And so, you know, there are young people in this room today, and you might be considering a career in the sciences. My daughter is studying the sciences in her university right now. And, and there's this idea that you might hear from the world or even the church that, well, you know, being a Christian is not going to help you out in that field. When you think about it, God created this world. And so if you learn biology, if you learn physics, if you learn cosmology, if you learn astronomy, if you learn chemistry, and you pursue Jesus Christ, the two will benefit each other. You're getting to know God better, and you're getting to know your field better. Go where God put you and follow the truth where it leads, and it will lead you back to him. So where does that leave us? If, if Jesus Christ is a God who wants us to love him with all of our minds, if the movement of Jesus has produced all this learning, all this education throughout the world, and it has, then what should we do as God's people today? What's our job? I think it's, our job is to combat ignorance. That's, that's a part of our calling. Along the way of serving Christ and sharing our faith, we need to overcome ignorance in the world. And, and that, in part, means we support our, our local schools, and here at First Baptist, I'm glad we partner with schools in our neighborhood, and we always will as long as I'm a pastor. And I think it means that we encourage people to pursue higher levels of education. Kids that graduate high school here have an opportunity to earn a scholarship, and I hope that we continue doing that. But, you know, none of that's really specifically Christian. When I say combat ignorance, I mean two things. I mean, first of all, we need to combat ignorance in our own lives. We need to make sure that you and I never stop learning. Romans 12.2 
says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love the way the New Living Translation puts that. It says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. There's no growing without having your mind renewed. There's no growth in Christ in becoming the person you're supposed to be without thinking, thinking deeply about important things. So let me ask you this. When's the last time you learned something new about God? When's the last time you actually read the Scriptures and thought, okay, that got me. That's talking to me right there. When's the last time God changed the way you think about anything? Because there's this idea, I think, that, that some of us figure, well, I've heard all these stories before. I've learned about just about all that I can. There's this idea that, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Guess what? That's not in the Bible. As long as you've got a brain, as long as you know your own name, I think you can still learn something. If I had my way, if I could snap my fingers and make certain things happen, three things would be true of every person in this room. You'd be reading the Bible every day in some amount. Number two, you would allow yourself to think deeply about the hard questions. There's this, there's this false idea, I think, that a lot of Christians think, well, I just, I just can't think about that. That's, that's above my pay grade. I, uh, that's too difficult. I'll let other people puzzle those things out. No, no, you've got a mind. Ask the hard questions. Talk about them among your friends. Study, do research. And third, you would all be part of a small group where you can discuss the truth of God's word together, where you can ask questions, where you can just confess, I have no idea what that meant, where you can learn from what they say and they can learn from you. And together, iron sharpens iron and you get closer to the truth. And you might be sitting there saying, you know, you're talking to people who are university graduates. I'm a, th- I'm a third grade dropout. That's okay. You've still got a brain. God still wants you to use it to get to know him better. The second thing, we need to combat ignorance, not just in ourselves. We need to go on the war path. We need to combat ignorance in the world. We need to recognize the opportunity we have to speak truth into people's lives. Let me tell you what I mean. 1 Peter 3.15 says it this way, Always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you the reason for the hope that you have. That word, an answer, is actually the Greek word apologia. We, hear, we get our word apologetics from it, and it literally means a defense. We are supposed to defend our faith. And let me tell you what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that we need to get in arguments. Don't mean we all need to be professional debaters. I know there are some people who are good at that. Some of you are good at that. I don't know anybody who's ever been debated into the kingdom of God. I really don't. I don't know anybody who's ever been shamed or ridiculed into becoming a Christian. So keep this in mind. When you hear someone say something you disagree with, keep this in mind. When, when, when you disagree with someone, you can either persuade them or you can insult them, but you can't do both. So ask yourself, what's my motivation? But having said that, I'd say the people that I just addressed that to are a a tiny minority of the people in this room. Most of you are extremely nice, and that's a problem because we're so stinking nice, we miss opportunities to speak truth into people's lives. And so here's my encouragement to you. No matter your level of education or how articulate you think you are, anytime you hear someone say anything that's even vaguely spiritual, enter into the conversation. Tell them your story. If they're asking a question, 
You know, why did that church down the street spend all that money on that new building? Why didn't they use it instead to, to feed poor people? You can enter into that conversation and say, I bet, if you, I bet if you check closer, you'd find out that church does a lot for the poor. Saying things about Scripture or about spiritual truth that are, that are just out of thin air. And you can say, well, I appreciate knowing what you believe. But let me tell you what I believe and why. And again, you might say, but, but I'm just not very smart and I don't know what to say in the moment. Let me give you two sentences that are very, very important. They will, they will bless you and bless others. Two sentences, okay? You ready? Number one, I don't know. And number two, I'll find out. There ain't nothing wrong with doing a little spiritual homework, with saying to someone, I have no idea. That's, you've brought up something I've never considered before, but I'll get back to you. And then you go talk to people that you know are willing to think deeply about things and, and you discuss it among yourselves and you do some study and you, you figure things out. You learn something new. You go back to them and say, here's what I've discovered. And that grows you and it shows them you don't have to turn off your brain to follow Jesus. In fact, you follow Jesus and your mind will be expanded like nothing else. You want to know the greatest piece of knowledge that anybody's ever spoken or any, anybody's ever learned? It is this. There is a God who exists, who not only created you, who not only knows everything about you, including how many hairs are on your head and every day you've ever lived and every will lived. Here's the thing. That God loves you so much, he'd rather die for you than spend eternity without you. That is the most important truth anyone can ever hear. So as we talk about learning and knowledge and education, all that's wonderful. But there's one truth that matters above all else. Christ came, God in the form of man, to die for our sins, to open the door so that all of us could know him and know him forever.